Hey everyone, Giordano here from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series. This episode is a companion to our recent Honest Government ad dedicated to Donald Trump's presidential campaign, Trump 2020. In the space of just a few months, our don't worry bro, it's just the flu policy has gotten a shit ton of you killed. Some say this tragedy was inevitable, but actually, studies show that if we'd simply responded like other governments who listen to scientists instead of Chuck Woolery and the MyPillow guy, we could have prevented almost all of those deaths. Unfortunately for you, the amount of responsibility we take in doing our job comes to approximately fuck all, which is why we got more of you killed than 59-11s. Trump 2020. With a president like this, who needs terrorists? Normally we tend to focus on Australian politics, but we've had so many Americans begging us to make a video about their government, so we've heeded your call. And I hope we've done your shit government justice, friends in the US. Also, with the US election coming up in November, I really feel like we need to talk about what's happening there, because regardless of where you live, the results of this election will impact everyone on Earth. In terms of climate action alone, this could be the most consequential election of our lifetime. And I couldn't think of a more perfect guest to help us understand just how high the stakes are for humanity and democracy right now than my guest today, Professor Noam Chomsky, world-renowned linguist, scientist, intellectual, activist, and political dissident. One of the most cited scholars alive and author of over a hundred books, Noam Chomsky is Professor Emeritus at MIT, where he taught for over five decades, and Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona. I'm so honored that he accepted my invitation to share a few words with us on our little corner of the internet and I hope those words will reach as many of you as possible because the message that they carry is truly vital. I hope you enjoy the interview and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Professor Noam Chomsky. Nice to be with you. I'm really, uh, really appreciate it. Um, so I'll just start off. Do you mind if I, I'll introduce you as Professor Chomsky and do you mind if I address you as Noam from then on? Sure. That's what everyone does. Okay, great. Except my enemies. <laughs> So welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Professor Noam Chomsky. It's really great to have you here. First of all, I just want to ask, how are you? I feel like I'm speaking to someone in a Mad Max film. You have climate-induced fires on your west and multiple hurricanes on your east, and the bits in between are full of social unrest, COVID, and frightening amounts of misinformation. So first of all, how, how are you? As you can see, I'm looking fine. Right. <laughs> We're seeing... Arizona, where I live, is a hot spot for the virus. The uh, governor is a, a Trump-loving Republican, so he didn't really declare a lockdown. And so the disease is rampant, but uh, we stay home, so we're okay. I'm glad to hear that. We don't have much time, uh, both for our conversation today and also for humanity as a whole. So I want to dive straight into the big picture with you. Can you please give us a sense of the historical moment that we're in right now? We have a saying that we often invoke in our videos, history is happening, which is a way of saying, hey, we are currently living through a history defining period for humanity. Let's be conscious of the forces that are shaping our future right now and act accordingly. Can you speak to the sentiment of history is happening and help us understand this defining moment for humanity that we're in? The current moment is uh, a remarkable one. In fact, it's unique in the history of the human species. Never been a moment like this. 
uh, happens to be a confluence of major crises, existential crises. Uh, two of them may simply destroy us very soon. The one is the growing threat of environmental catastrophe. The other is the also growing threat of nuclear war, both extremely serious. Uh, and there's more, of course, we're in the midst of a raging pandemic uh, that somehow will get rid of the, will get out of the pandemic we're at tremendous cost, a mostly needless cost in the United States, uh, which is handling it more, more incompetently than any other country. Uh, there'll be hundreds of thousands of people killed needlessly as we can see by comparing it with the record in comparable countries. Uh, the, uh, uh, there's a fourth, aside from the threat of nuclear war, environmental disaster, pandemic, uh, there's another threat which is very serious, and that's the significant deterioration of democracy. In fact, if you look at the famous uh, doomsday clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which gives a succinct uh, expert snapshot of the world security situation. It was initiated in 1947 after the first atom bombs. Uh, the, the, the minute hand at that point was set seven minutes to midnight. Midnight means terminal disaster goodbye, it's done. Uh, over the years, it's oscillated. Every year that Trump has been in office, the minute hand has been moved closer to midnight. Two years ago, it reached the closest it has ever been, two minutes to midnight. This past January, the analysts gave up on minutes. They switched to seconds, a hundred seconds to midnight. That was before the pandemic had really struck. It actually had begun, but wasn't yet recognized. And they gave three reasons from earlier years as to why the now second hand is moving towards midnight. One is the failure to deal with the threat of environmental catastrophe. The second is the growing threat of nuclear war. The third was deterioration of democracy. Now it sounds at first as if that may not belong with the other two, but it actually does because the only hope for escaping the two growing existential crises is a vibrant democratic system in which an informed public engages directly in the issues of life and death that face us. Uh, take a look at the last few months. President Trump has achieved something quite impressive. He has made all of these problems significantly worse. Uh, he's the environmental crisis, He's opened up new areas, vast new areas for 
uh, oil drilling, including the last nature reserve in the United States. Uh, he's uh, been tearing apart the regulations that are imposed to somewhat mitigate the effects of the coming disaster. In, the, in nuclear war, he has proceeded with his campaign to destroy entirely the arms control regime that has been meticulously constructed ever since Eisenhower. It's gone. The last parts of it he destroyed in the last few months. Deterioration of democracy is very serious. He's turned the executive branch of the US government uh, into a, he's, he's totally purged it. There's nothing left except psychophants. Any critical voice is thrown out uh, just recently, a couple months ago. Now, there are inspectors general imposed by Congress to monitor executive offices. But they started looking into the swamp of corruption that he's established in Washington took care of this easily, just fired them. And more recently, it's gotten even worse. He's announced publicly that if he doesn't like the outcome of the election, he won't leave. And this is taken very seriously in the highest places. Just recently, uh, two distinguished senior high military officers uh, uh, retired, but very distinguished and respected, uh, wrote a letter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, highest military official, outlining for him his, his constitutional responsibilities if Trump refuses to leave office and gathers around him in defense the paramilitary forces uh, that he has in fact been using, sent them to terrorize Portland recently. Not he, he didn't send the military because they wouldn't have obeyed orders. He sent paramilitaries, border police, those sorts of things. If he tries to keep himself in office, as this letter points out, it's the responsibility of the commander to send in military forces they said the 82nd Airborne Division to force him out of office. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of parliamentary democracy, except for the Civil War. Now that's the moment we're living in. That brings us to the question of the, the election that is about to take place in the US. And it feels more than just an election for the president of the United States. It feels like an election on the future path of humanity. Um, and you've just hinted at some of the, the, how high the stakes are. At the same time, you've also explained that, you know, we face a real threat to democracy. And I, I really feel that it feels like a train wreck unfolding where there is deep mistrust. Um, not just of Trump, but from Trump supporters also of uh, the, the Biden campaign, both sides don't seem to trust each other to respect the outcomes of the election. Um, there seems to be this sort of breakdown of, is this what it feels like when democracy breaks down? And if so, how can people organize and rise to the challenge that this poses to democracy? Well, if you want to look at the technicalities which are being 
intensively discussed now, never before, because the situation never arose. Uh, constitutions give a kind of a general framework for uh, behavior, but they don't, they're not axiom systems. They don't deal with every particularity. Uh, the parliamentary democracy relies essentially on trust and good faith. And that's been observed until now. So Richard Nixon was not the most delightful person in political history, but in 1960, the election was stolen from him by manipulations by democratic operatives who manipulated the vote in Chicago and elsewhere. He knew he'd probably won the election, but he didn't contest it. He put the welfare of the country over his personal ambition. Uh, Al Gore did the same thing in 2000 when the election was stolen. Not now. We have a different situation. Actually, there has been a kind of precursor of this. Boris Johnson, you may recall last year, he prorogued parliament, canceled parliament, because he wanted to ram through his version of Brexit, uh, caused a furor among legal circles in England, said it's breaking down the whole history of the British constitution, it was finally blocked by the Supreme Court. But he's continuing. A couple of days ago, he uh, announced that Britain is going to violate international law by rejecting the treaty, the agreement that I just signed with the European Union, which has the force of international law, says we're going to just violate it a little bit. Don't worry. Of course, the European Union is furious. They've given a deadline of the end of September uh, to conform or to have a total break, which would be an utter disaster for the British economy, which is in bad enough shape under Tory rule and for Europe also harmful. Now that's happening in a couple of weeks. The November election is shortly after. The two oldest parliamentary democracies are in serious trouble and hanging over them is not only the pandemic, but the growing threat of environmental catastrophe and nuclear war. There hasn't been a moment like this in not only modern history, but human history. Focusing on the on the on the US election, what is your advice to people who care who are conscious of, of the threats that you've just described and that you've been raising the alarm about for some time? What what is your your advice for how to how to um, navigate this election so that it can so we can get through this so that um, so that democracy can be salvaged? Well, the first thing to do is try to act decisively, organize, mobilize so that there will be an overwhelming popular vote against Trump. Uh, usually, my own position has been always that elections are kind of a sideshow. A vote if it's important, if it's not important, proceed with real politics, which is constant activism. 
maybe take off a few minutes to vote against somebody, but then go back to work. And I've also always felt that in states that are safe, that where you know the outcome, it doesn't matter that much. Vote green or something. Vote else. your conscience, yeah. But not now. Now I think it is extremely important to try to develop the largest possible popular vote against Trump. Because the higher the vote, the harder it'll be for him and his associates to try to destroy the constitutional order. They'll probably try anyway, but uh, the higher the vote, the harder it'll be. Will this work? I don't, you want my honest opinion? Probably not, uh, for several reasons. The one reason is parts of the left. There are parts of the left that insist that it doesn't matter. They're like the far right in denying the incredible impact of Trump's climate policies and nuclear policies. The far right just dismisses them. They say it doesn't matter. Far left does the same, say it doesn't matter. There are two corporate liberals, doesn't matter who wins. They're, they might very well hand the election to Trump. Uh, it's not the first time in history. I'm old enough to remember earlier times, like uh, the early 1930s when I was a young child. And the German Communist Party followed Stalin's orders, uh, which held that the socialists were just what were called social fascists, no different from the Nazis. So therefore, we shouldn't unite with them oh. to oppose Hitler. So you've seen this play out before? Well, I've seen it before. Can I ask uh, you, sorry, um, I, I wanted to jump on to this because um, it, part of the problem that seems to be unfolding uh, uh, on the surface, which is sort of the, the traditional political sphere with the media and political parties is one issue. But below that, um, there, is, there is another current that's unfolding, which is this dangerous turn that American conspiracies have taken. You've spoken a lot during your lifetime about the role of corporate media in spreading propaganda, but now there's another highly contagious form of propaganda, and that's the rise of internet-based conspiracies like the pandemic and QAnon, um, which are turbocharged by social media. And in a way, the biggest challenge that we face right now is in, in the human mind in mass as it struggles to navigate and pass through this minefield of, of misinformation. Do you have, have you had a chance to think about that and, and, and how that integrates into this whole picture? A lot of chance to think about it. It's very serious. In the United States, it's an epidemic, but it's worldwide. Let me just give you one example. That one of the things that can be done on the internet and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of it in the future, is just faking articles and attributing them to somebody. There's nothing you can do about it. I've had it happen to me a number of times. The crazy articles put up on the internet, my name under them. You can say it's not me, but it doesn't matter. Once it's on the internet, it's all over the place. Well, one of them was about the pandemic. An article, uh, something was posted on the pandemic saying that the pandemic was created in a US military lab uh, with on purpose 
to try to control the whole world. Signed, Noam Chomsky. Got lots of letters from all over the place. Interesting. Many of them from friends, sensible people, Europeans, sensible left intellectuals saying, thanks for finally telling the truth. I mean, it's not just the United States. I don't know what it's like in Australia. And No, it's, it's spreading here too. And as you've intimated, it's not just, you know, uninformed, uneducated people that are getting sucked into this. It's really, in fact, it seems to be sucking in people who are genuinely suspicious of government authority. These people who are valuable players in the struggle that you've just described are being taken out of the fight because they're being sort of led astray and um, no, no, um, then they pose no threat to power whatsoever because they've gone on this kind of goose chase. So it feels like a real threat. I think it's worth thinking of the reasons for this. I think the main reason is 40 years of neoliberalism. The neoliberal assault on the population worldwide has been extremely harmful for the large majority of the population, greatly beneficial to its architects. So for example, you take in the United States, which is the initiator, the most extreme version, by now 0.1%, not 1%, 0.1% of the population have 20% of the wealth. That's double what it was when Reagan came in. Uh, majority of the population uh, has seen real wages decline over the last, at, at best stagnate, mostly decline. Uh, large majority get by from paycheck to paycheck. And their world's collapsed. Uh, democracies declined, uh, institutions have collapsed. It's happening to some degree or another all over the world. And that has an effect. It leads to anger, fear, uh, resentment, distrust of authority, uh, the media, the political parties. In Europe, the traditional governing parties have basically gone. They're almost not there. Social Democratic Party in Germany, the oldest mass party, virtually invisible elsewhere too. Well, that's fertile territory for conspiracy theories and for demagogues to foster them. People want some kind of an answer. Nothing makes any sense. Why is this happening to us? Okay, it's the deep state. It's Bill Gates, it's George Soros, it's Chinese and something. Uh, that's the territory that's being exploited by demagogues like Trump focuses, he repeats the QAnon craziness on his tweets so people listen to it. They hear it on Fox News, Murdoch's Fox News. So that's their, that's their world. You've just mentioned um, <clears throat> the deep state, um, and that's such a prominent sort of part of the, this conspiracy that we're seeing now, QAnon, everyone's focused on the deep state and so on. One of the people who has really exposed the real deep state is Julian Assange, and yet he is being tortured by that very real uh, deep state right now. Um, and we're not seeing a whole lot of people rallying to his defense. Um, and I was wondering, 
you know, that the extradition hearing is happening right now as we speak. I think it's day eight now. Uh, so many people don't even know that it's happening, and yet it's such a consequential uh, court case. Could you help us understand the significance of this case and perhaps also why the mainstream media isn't covering it? It's enormously significant. Uh, Julian Assange has done what any good journalist ought to do. He managed to obtain information that the US government would like to keep secret from its own people, other governments too. He's brought them to the public. That's journalism. And he's being punished for it. He spent seven years basically imprisoned in the Ecuadorian embassy. It's not an embassy, it's an apartment. I visited him there. It's in many ways worse than being in a maximum security prison. Prisoners at least are allowed to go out and see the sunlight for a few minutes. Not there. Uh, British security forces surrounding the whole place. Uh, almost no charge. The charge of skipping bail. I mean, it's ludicrous. Tap on the wrist. Uh, now he's in a high security prison under isolation, the place where they can keep the most dangerous terrorists uh, on the charge of skipping bail. Okay. Of course, the real charge is coming from Washington. If he's released, the British government will almost surely capitulate to its master across the street, across the ocean, and send him to be charged for uh, espionage, uh, 175 years in jail, if he even manages to survive, which he probably won't. The ultimate uh, to the, uh, torture, you know, don't even, can't even describe it. And that's the crime. He's an Australian citizen. Australia should be saying something about this. That's, you're supposed to defend your citizens. Of course, not when you're in terror of the godfather who's on the loose and is very dangerous. So let's admit it, cowering in terror before the godfather, just as Europe is doing. And you can understand why. There's a madman on the loose who has enormous power and very few constraints. And it's not just Trump. I mean, he's turning it into a monstrosity, but it's been going on for some time. In fact, it's the it's the neoliberal wave being pressed to the ultimate extreme of absurdity with powerful, they talk about weak state, they don't mean it, powerful state working for uh, the most entrenched interests, government and corporate. Now it's out of control. It can be controlled. We're not finished. We still have functioning democracy. Enough, enough public pressure could induce the British courts to release Assange and could induce the British government not to accept the extradition demand. Could happen. Same on the other issues. But if you just look away, it's not going to happen. Noam, I, um, 
I wanted to ask you a sort of slightly um, different question. As you know, we produce political satire, uh, the Honest Government ad series, where we sort of uh, impersonate governments to give an honest message. I sent you the link to the video um, that, that this companion will be, that this podcast will be a companion to. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you have some thoughts about satire, because the resistance to everything that you've mentioned is coming not just from political parties and activism, but satirists and comedians have also really taken up the challenge and they're engaging with us. I know we certainly are. And a lot of people write to us and thank us for dealing with these issues uh, that are not always easy to, you know, to make comedy about because they're very serious issues. I was wondering if you have a word for satirists, for, for people like us um, and in the struggle and whether, what do you think the role that satire plays in all of this? It's a long tradition, a noble tradition. It goes back to court jesters in the uh, most autocratic uh, traditional government. Now, they were allowed a certain amount of latitude and they were able to tell the powerful what the people really believed and wanted to hear because it was considered just gestures. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I'm told that Kabuki theater in Japan had a similar role, mocking the powerful from the standpoint of the people. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Mark Twain, great humorist. Uh, his, he wrote very powerful essays uh, attacking the US invasion of the Philippines. Interestingly, they were mostly suppressed. He's one of the most popular writers in the country, but the work was suppressed for almost a hundred years. We now have it. Now, one of the things he was doing was satirizing the political and military leaders in the United States who were carrying out this murderous war. He got to somebody named General Funston, famous general, has a big statue in San Francisco. And he wrote at that point, I'm stumped. I can't deal with Funston. He is satire incarnate. It's impossible to satirize him. Actually, that's what I feel like sometimes when I look at Trump. When I, I told you, when I looked at the clip you sent me with, with one of your programs, it happened to begin with an ad for Trump. And I watched it for about a minute and I thought, okay, that's what you mean as the satire because that's satire incarnate, you know. But yes, there's a very valuable role. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. And yes, I, it is a very hard act to follow uh, to come after a real Trump ad to then do a, a mock Trump ad. Noam, I have one last question. I know you've, you know, you have a lot on your plate and just really want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, before I ask you this question, I just, I just wanted to take this opportunity to really personally um, thank you for all you have done. You, you are such an inspiration uh, to my generation and to generations to come. And, you know, I see so much heartache and desperation in people who are overwhelmed by the, the collapse of society and life on this planet. And I think I speak for many thousands of people when I say that you have been a guiding light in this age of obscene injustice and inequality. So in, in the most sincere way possible, I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much. I wanted to end with a big picture question. Um, First of all, what, what motivated your lifelong quest for justice? What have been, who have been your guides? And secondly, why do you still fight? You've been speaking truth to power 
for a lifetime, what keeps you going? And I just wanted to preface that just by saying again that, you know, so many people are conscious of the dire future that lies ahead. And for many, it's a great source of anxiety and even depression. Many can't deal with it. And yet we need these people to be engaged and active. You engage with all of these issues front on, but you also maintain a sense of calmness. And I was wondering if you could share with people what advice do you have for people who want to be engaged, who want to deal with these problems, but find it hard psychologically and emotionally? What, what, what has kept you going? Well, I think there's a lot that keeps us going right now. So the, take the United States, uh, after the George Floyd murder, there was a spontaneous uh, development of protest, black-white solidarity all over the country. And within days, it became the largest social movement in American history, strongly supported. About two-thirds of the population supported it, far more support than Martin Luther King had at the peak of his popularity. These are people who are just finally saying it's enough. We have to deal not just with police murders of black, but with 400 years of vicious treatment of the Afro-American population, harshest system of slavery in human history, consequences, horrible consequences afterwards, leaving a very grim legacy. We can't just let this go. We have to do something about it. That's not the first thing. There's been a rising growth of consciousness about this, which is of deep concern to the most reactionary sectors in the United States. Uh, two years ago, the New York Times ran a very powerful series called the 1619 Project, 400 years of vicious repression of Afro-Americans. President Trump just a day or two ago tweeted that if any school in the country uses that as part of their curriculum, he's going to cut off federal funds. Okay, this is a major struggle between the worst, most brutal elements who happen to hold power and a large mass of the population, in fact, a good majority. Well, a reason for hope. Take a look at young people. They are in the, the campaign to try to prevent us from destroying ourselves by neglecting the threat of global warming. They are in the lead. They're the ones in Extinction Rebellion. They're the ones who carried out the climate strike. They're the ones who in the United States uh, occupied congressional offices and forced Congress to put the Green New Deal on the legislative agenda. And they're the ones who are represented by a 16-year-old autistic girl who puts the whole world to shame, stands up at the Davos meetings of the great and powerful, gives a calm, eloquent, factual speech, ending up by talking to the greats and saying, you betrayed us. Okay, that's a sign of hope. 
They're the coming generation. We have betrayed them. It's a fact. We shouldn't stand by passively and let them fight the fate and hold the banner. We should be supporting them. We're the ones who can do it. That's enough to give people hope and optimism. So that is what you keep in your mind, that what, what helps to keep you sane in, in, in a sense is, is looking for where the hope, where the, where the fight is being taken at and not only focusing on the problem, on the reaction, but actually on what is being done to actively get us through this. I've always been there. My old friend, Howard Zinn, who I'm sure you know, one of my favorite statements of his is when he talked about what he called the countless unknown people whose acts of courage create the situations, circumstances in which the important acts of history take place. They're always there. Okay, we don't know their names. Uh, I don't know their names, I'm sure you don't, but they're there and they're carrying the struggle forward with courage, engagement, integrity, that we should not only admire, but emulate. And indigenous people also are being on the front, on the front lines. In Especially on the environment. They've been yes. way in the lead for years. Professor Noam Chomsky, I just want to thank you again so much for joining us on the Juice Media Podcast. Thank you for everything you've done and for keeping us informed and helping that consciousness to, to rise. Thank you very much and good luck with the coming election. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. For me, it's been real. I read my first Chomsky book when I was a teenager, and he's been a familiar voice ever since, as I'm sure he has been for many of you too. So the fact that I had this opportunity to share this moment with him is something I'll always cherish. At the same time, I couldn't help but feel a deep sense of sadness during our interview as I know a day will come when Noam Chomsky is no longer with us and I think for many of us it'll feel like losing a family member. 